so good to be together. Merry Christmas to you. Hope you're enjoying our holiday season. Uh, it's great to gather together and worship uh, together. going to be this afternoon in uh, Isaiah chapter 35. So if you want to turn there in just a couple minutes, we'll read, read a passage there uh, together. I learned something about God when I walked into a room of a grieving family. Uh, an adult uh, man was attending the church and was in a fatal accident. And so I was called, went to the hospital, and I walked into a waiting room filled with parents and siblings that I didn't know that didn't know me, but I walked in to do the pastoral call. And so when I walked in, there was a little bit of talking to one another. Who's that? What is he doing here? Within my hearing. And uh, so I, I could tell already how welcome I was in this visit here. Uh, they didn't know me at all personally. I didn't know them. Uh, it's one of those moments where you're not really a person, you're a position. Uh, but being a pastor didn't mean anything to them either. So, uh, and I walked into a difficult situation and spent some time with this family. And obviously this was probably one of the most difficult and probably one of the saddest moments of their lives. And we sat and we spent time together and there was some awkward silence. There were some glances. There was some discomfort. But I finally asked the family, so what, what do you remember about him? What comes to mind? And then they began to share and began to talk, began to tell stories. Next thing I knew, there were some smiles on their faces because they had some positive memories and they were recounting some favorable moments and some happy times and, and the conversation grew. And I learned something about God in that moment that even in some of the saddest and most difficult times, God desires to bring in some joy. That God has a, a plan and an intention that even in difficult times, that it's a desire, that it's an intent of God to speak into a situation, to come into a situation, and even in that can bring joy. It's the kind of God that we serve, the kind of God that creates light in the midst of darkness, that forms order in the midst of chaos, that brings righteousness in the midst of evil, and brings joy in the midst of sadness. Our Christmas Advent series is about these gifts of Christmas, these unusual gifts that God brings to us. God brings us hope when there seems to be no hope to be found. God brings peace when there's fear and anxiety and this afternoon, joy, even when there's loss and sadness. Christmas, God sending his son, Jesus arriving on the earth, the, the theologians call the incarnation, that Jesus steps into our world, takes on human flesh. That's the moment where the world can see the greatest expression of the grace of God stepping into our need and bringing to us these gifts. 
Would you pray with me before we read our passage? Father in heaven, I ask that you'd open wide our hearts, the ears that lead to our spiritual lives, Lord, to receive from you your word, instruction from your word, that you would so fill our hearts, Lord, to be able to, in a unique way this afternoon, receive this wonderful gift of joy that you bring. Regardless of what's going on in people's lives, some quite happy, some struggling, some sad. Nevertheless, by your Spirit, speak a word this afternoon that stirs up, that brings, that produces in our hearts this joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 35 is a wonderful chapter. I think you're going to like it. It's a beautiful chapter, and it is a chapter where God does this very thing. He speaks into a situation that is quite dark, quite bad. Everybody's down. Nothing is good. But in the middle of that, God speaks these 10 verses, and they're words of joy. The chapter is just infused with joy. So in one of the darkest moments in a historical point of biblical history, God inserts 10 verses just dripping with joy. Let's read them together. Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's a chapter that's filled with joy. So let's dig into this chapter and let's find it. Let's find the joy and have the Lord by his spirit fill our hearts with it. My first point is the joy of coming home. The context of Isaiah 35 is that they are about to lose their home. They are in the process of being thrown into exile. 
They are undergoing a judgment of God for forsaking the Lord. And God is prophesying through Isaiah chapter after chapter all these woes. And in chapter 34 is a list of woes to a country, a nation known as Edom. Edom is from Esau. Maybe you remember Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And so what's happening in chapter 34 is God is saying, you know, there are the, the ones who have rejected God, and then there are the children of God. And so we have this contrast. We remember, I don't know if you remember, maybe we should read Malachi chapter 1 just to point this out. Let me just turn there a minute. Let's read those few verses. Malachi chapter 1, it kind of explains, and it's good to see it in the text. Malachi chapter 1 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we were shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now I know that's a tricky or challenging voice. The point is this. There are people that so reject God that they are under the wrath of God, which we all acknowledge we all once were at one point outside the grace of God, outside the benefits of the gospel, and yet we've come into that. So here, God is contrasting those who are not under the grace of God and those who are. And we have both Edom and Israel entering into a time of punishment, but for Edom, it's a forever kind of punishment. But for the people of God, it is not. It's a discipline. It's a temporary discipline of a loving father. So while Edom receives these woes in chapter 35, the family of God, the people of God, Israel, receive these words of joy. Do you understand? Both are experiencing similar circumstances. Both are facing the discipline of the Lord. And yet with the one, God says, in the midst of that, I'm going to speak to you words of joy even in the discipline of exile god speaks words of joy a promise about returning home isaiah 35 is a chapter about returning home that's what god uses to infuse joy the joy of coming home for christmas that will be the title of the sermon I probably stole the title off of six or eight Hallmark films, or some version thereof. The joy of coming home for Christmas. Home is a constant theme throughout the Bible. It's sort of a, a, a story about home. I loved a book from Jen Pollock Michael called Keeping Place, and in it she writes this, the biblical narrative begins and ends at home. From the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem, we are hardwired for place and for permanence, for rest and for refuge, for presence and protection. We long for home because welcome was our first gift of grace and it will be our last. She goes on to describe 
sort of an overview in the Bible. She says, if the Bible testifies to the joy of home, the bulk of the narrative witnesses to the grief of its loss. Displacement is at the heart of God's judgment, writes Bartholomew, who suggests that the biblical drama can be divided into three acts, emplacement, displacement, and reemplacement. After Genesis 3, the history of Eve and Adam's children strings together like one long farewell. In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother in a jealous rage and is cursed to wander. In Genesis 6 through 9, a flood of divine wrath destroys people and place. Noah and his family are rescued from judgment, and as they emerge from the ark, they're commanded to fill the earth and make it home. But this beginning ends no more hopefully than the first. In Genesis 11, people once again dare to be like God and begin construction on the Tower of Babel. Their profane act of self-emplacement is thwarted, and God scatters them, the construction site becoming a vacant urban lot, another spectacle of blight and abandonment. You see how home becomes sort of the basis of the whole biblical story. God designs us to be home with him, gives us a place to reside where he resides with us, the concept of, of home, and yet through the rebellion and through sin, it's the being displaced from home seems to be almost the entire narrative of the Bible and God at work through the grace of the gospel to restore us to home, to bring us back home. We have a longing in our hearts for home. I know you all feel it in a variety of ways. There's something inside of us that, that just treasures this and, and values it. We have the word nostalgia, which we know in our common uses means, you know, we're, we're sort of pining back to some, some pleasant history, some pleasant memory. We want things to be the way they used to be. The, the actual word, uh, a very good translation, is just homesickness. Nostalgia, feeling pain of lacking home is what that word really means. In fact, a little over 100 years ago, doctors used to use this as a diagnosis for all kinds of ailments, even physical ailments. Nostalgia was even written on some death certificates. They died of nostalgia. You die of homesickness. It's like, and you know, we, we chuckle because the medical industry has changed so much, but let's not be too quick. They were onto something. They understood something about human nature. We long for home. And when we are homesick, we get sick because it's a genuine lack in our soul. It's a very real ache fixed in the human soul, an ache for home. Now, we're in a room full of people from a variety of backgrounds. Now, your home may not have been the ideal home. And so you may have come from a troubled home, uh, an angry home, maybe even an abusive home, troubled home. You may have not pleasant memories of home, but that doesn't change the point. In fact, the sorrow and the struggle that you feel actually makes the point. We long for home, and we long for home as it was meant to be, safe, secure, with provision, with love, safety, and protection. 
And so this is how God decides to infuse joy into his people, to make a promise about coming home. As if he's grabbing a hold of this deepest part of our longings of our heart. I know this is what you were made for. I know this is what you desire. I know you desire this to be good. You were made for this. And so while you are presently undergoing the discipline of the Lord and you will be taken from your home, you will watch your homes be destroyed, you will be taken to a foreign land for a time, I want you to know here and now, before it all happens, I'm promising you, I'm going to bring you back home. So we have the joy of coming home. That's where the message that God is trying to give to his people. And the second point is the joy of a new home. It's a return home, but it's not a return to the same home. If you picked up some of the words as we read through this chapter, it's not the same home. We talk about nostalgia as the way things used to be, but when God is infusing joy here, he's talking about a way things have never been for them, something in the future. It is still home, but it is a new home. This right here is the original fixer-upper concept. You remember the first show, fixer-upper? You remember the, the concept, what they would do is they would find a family that in some way had an inappropriate home. The home didn't fit them. The home didn't suit them. Large family, small home. Needy family with a, with a home that wouldn't accommodate well, and they would find the situation. And so Ty and his gang would, would come in, and they would send the family into exile for a week, and the crews of professionals would step in and go to work, and they would redesign the home specifically for that family. And in lightning speed, they would reconstruct and rebuild and remodel. And then, of course, the last three minutes of the show, the, the whole climax of the show was to capture the joy of the family as the remodeled, rebuilt, renewed home was revealed to this family. And they would take them on a tour through the rooms, and each bedroom was specifically designed for that child and their desires and their wants and their interests. And everything about the house was specifically designed to meet the needs of this family, these people. It was a great show because it was a biblical show because it was about giving people a home, which is precisely what God is about in his grace. Isaiah chapter 35 is the fixer-upper chapter of the Bible. It is God promising, I'm, I'm building a place for you, I'm building a home for you, and it is a new home, a renewed home that is designed specifically for you. And we read through these verses, all nature is renewed in the new home. Wilderness and dry land is glad, deserts blossom so much that you would describe it as singing. I don't know how many of you are gardeners, but what would your garden have to look like for you to walk out and look at it and have it come to mind? I feel like my garden is singing. These flowers and vegetables are rejoicing. That's what I see when I look. It's that flourishing. They're doing that well. They're growing that abundantly that your poetic side of you comes out and you look at it and you say, it's like they're all singing and rejoicing before God right now. They're growing 
that well. The glories of Lebanon, Carmel, Sharon, all these are locations that speak of a sense of fruitfulness and order and beauty. It'd be like me saying to you, Napa. Say Napa Valley immediately. All right, I already know what went through your mind. Beautiful pictures of glorious vineyards and rolling hills and sunshine and beautiful, good-looking people that don't really have to work, sit around sipping wine all day. All that went through your mind, didn't it? As soon as I said Napa, all I had to do was say the word, and you had something extremely positive go through your mind about what that looks like. Place of fruitfulness, ease, comfort, beauty. That's what the writer here is doing, dropping these names that cause everybody to spark up and think, oh, it's going to be beautiful. Oh, it's going to be fruitful. Oh, it's going to be abundant. It's going to be relaxing. It's going to be glorious. The writer goes on, it's not just nature, but everyone is going to be healthy too. Blind people are going to see. Deaf people are going to hear. Lame people are going to leap like a deer. Like a deer. Jumping around like a deer. You can't walk. You have no use of your legs. And you're going to be jumping and running like a deer. Your troubles are going to be over. I'm talking about your new home. In your new home, your troubles, they're going to be over. You won't need that surgery. Those stomach issues, your sleepless nights, all think of the past. It's all done. It's all going to be made right. It's all going to be made as it ought to be. This is the renewed home that the Lord is promising to his people. This is how God says, I'm going to infuse into your soul joy. It's about your home, your new home that I'm preparing for you, that I'm promising you will come to. But there's one main thing that makes this truly a great home, what makes any home a home. And in it, it talks about the glory of the Lord. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. One of the most important things that we learn about home is that it is less about the building and it's more about the people. It's about the family. And we learn this and we, we realize this. Even if we get distracted with the building and fixing it up and making it more and more beautiful, we realize that the true sentiment of home has to do with the reality that we have in this place the people that we love and care about. Home is where the family is. Home is where the ones you love reside together. Well, God's definition of home is when he and his people are abiding together. So God's concept of home. You and I can build a concept of home. And even, even taking these verses and, and creating some beautiful scene in our minds, the real definition from God, from the Bible about home is that he's there which is what makes it home, which is what makes it so extremely special. And what makes it all work is because the glory of the Lord is there, and that's what makes this home that home, and the home that truly brings joy into our hearts. There was an account back in Chronicles, Second Chronicles where Solomon 
completed building this temple. It was a glorious temple. It was extraordinary temple. And he finally completes the building of it after years and years. And has this massive ceremony. And he says this massive prayer to God at the dedication of this temple. It essentially goes something like this. Lord, we've built you this house. Although what house can contain you? You're God. Nevertheless, we built this house, a place for you to live. And so, Father, what we're asking is that every time we're in need or in trouble, when things go wrong in life, we will come to this house and we will call out to you. And, Father, what I'm asking is that when we call out to you from this house, from this place where you dwell, would you hear our prayer and answer us? And he goes through a list of all kinds of troubles. Lord, if this is happening and we cry out, Will you forgive us and will you meet us? And, and God affirms, yes, yes, I will. But God adds something to his response. Now, Solomon, if you and my people forsake me, if you leave me out, I want you to know I'm going to destroy this house. The house is not our house if I'm not living in it. If you don't keep me at the center of this house, you will be displaced. The house will be destroyed because you've missed the most important factor of what it means to be home. It means to be with the Lord. In other words, the most important thing about home is our relationship and it is our relationship with him, not the building itself. And this is the real source of joy for returning to a renewed home because it's the place where God's glory is. And just to get a taste, just a glimpse of that is a kind of soul satisfaction unlike anything in this world. And that draws us to long for that home and to rejoice knowing that it will be our home. But God gives us more than a kind of future joy. Hey, I bet you can't wait to get home because home is going to be glorious. So you might not be happy today, but that day you're going to be very happy. No, he does more than that. The third point is the joy of the way home. It's not just a home, it's getting to that home. That too is a way and a context that God infuses into our hearts a sense of joy. He says in this chapter, and a highway shall be there. Isaiah, this is a third context where Isaiah speaks about a way or a, or a highway. In, 11, in chapter 11, verse 16, Isaiah spoke of the highway from Assyria for the remnant to return. In other words, I'm sending you into exile, but I want you to know I'm going to build a highway to get you back. So when you're away in exile, what I'm going to be busy doing is building this freeway system that is going to make it easy for you to come back because I want you to know before you even go, I'm planning on bringing you back home. There is a highway. In Isaiah 2, it talks about the house of the Lord being established on the highest mountain, lifted up above the hills, so all the nations can flow to it, can flock to it. 
In other words, the way to God, God is saying, I'm, I'm publishing it, I'm making it a highway. The, the, the word here is literally like it's, it's a highway, okay? It's a, it's a road up high, and the idea is God saying, I'm building a way that is very visible, unambiguous. You can see it from wherever you are. It's the way that I've made for you to come home. Good signage, well marked. You always know you're on the road. It's always being identified. It was writing this and thinking, gosh, you know, ever since GPS and phones has taken away all the illustrations about getting lost and finding directions. It's like they, none of the illustrations work anymore. I don't know if any of you can remember actually driving and being lost and driving down a freeway or a road and saying, oh, I'm praying for a sign. I mean a sign, like a street sign. I need a direction sign. I need, I need something to tell me where I am and where I'm going. And, and that's what God is saying about this highway. It's visible. It's clear. Well marked. Plenty of signage. You know where it's at. Because God wants his people to return home. And so he makes the way unmistakable. This is how the future joy becomes present joy. The highway that God has made is present today. The highway to home, we could say, is the Christian life today. We are the pilgrims on our pilgrimage to the home that God has prepared for. So we're on the way. If you're here today and you're in Christ, you're following Christ, you're, you're on this highway. You're on this road. Being on it, getting on it, staying on it is the real source of joy for today. Because of where it's taking us. Because the road is marked and telling us where we're going. So in our chapter, we get some detail about this highway. And the first point is that it's called the way of holiness. The way is called holiness. To be on this road is to be on a, on a highway called holiness. Now, when you hear that word, I have to caution you you will completely miss the gospel and miss the grace of God is, is if, as soon as I say it is a highway of holiness in your mind, in your perceptions, like, oh, that must be a road for the good people, for the people that have it all together. Oh, I know some of those people, and I know I'm not one of those people, so I must not be on, this, on that highway. I must be on some low way here because I'm not holy. If, if that's where your mind went, then, then you are going to miss the grace of God. It is better to start your understanding of holiness by its true definition of being set apart. The word is talking about having a, a singleness of heart, that your heart is in a sense devoted to the Lord. This road only goes one way. This road only has one destination. In other words, it's a holy way. There is a singleness about this way. It is all about one thing. If your life is about some other thing, then that means you're not on 
this highway because this highway only goes one place. It only has one purpose. It is taking God's people home. If you're not going home, then you're not on this highway. It's a holy highway. Single purpose. One point, one direction, one destination. This is not for the unclean or the fool. Now, the unclean here is a reference to, in the Old Testament times, with the ceremonial uncleanness of a person. Now, the thing to understand about this is that everybody was unclean lots of times. And so the point of being unclean is simply just get clean. The whole temple ceremonial system was a way designed to say when you're unclean, we kind of read it if you're unclean, but the reality is when you're unclean, this is what you do, what you need to do in order to be clean so that you can enter into the temple and worship God. So if you touched a dead body, found yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, here's what you need to do to get clean. So when God is saying this highway is not for the unclean, what's really being said is this, this is for the person who refuses to get clean when they're unclean. It's not saying, well, if you've ever been unclean, you can't get on this road. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit any biblical narrative. The point is, when you're unclean, you just get clean. First John chapter 1, when we sin, and we all stumble in many ways, James says. We have an advocate with the Father. We go and we confess, and he cleanses us. He cleanses us. He makes us clean from all unrighteousness. It also talks about the fool, but the translation that I read, I think, is a little confusing. It's a little bit hard to know. It kind of gives the impression, as it's written in the ESV, that uh, even a fool might stumble their way onto this highway. But I don't think that's really getting a, a good, accurate pull from the, from the Hebrew here probably not saying that even fools can walk this path because that's quite counter to the rest of Scripture. And in Proverbs especially, but the wisdom literature of the Bible, some of the, the fool, we, we are talking about of the willful neglectors of wisdom. Okay, it's not just, I just happen to have a really low IQ. I don't seem to get things very quick. You've got to tell me six times before you. It's, we're not talking about that. We're ta the Bible talks about the fool as being it's like, I really don't want to hear what you have to say. I have no inclination towards wisdom. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a willful neglect of wisdom from above, and I continually avoid it. So that, that's really the biblical picture of the fool. So it might be better translated... If they are fools, they will not wander in it. In other words, you're not just going to be bumbling around and find yourself on this path. You don't end up on this path unintentionally, unawares. I was just this bumbling fool, just stumbling through life, but all of a sudden I found myself on the Christian life, and, and, and here I am. I say, well, that, that's really not how it works. You don't just happen to find yourself on this highway. It's a work of the Spirit. We come in willfully, and we're drawn onto it, and it's a thoughtful, willful acceptance and acknowledgement. 
The chapter goes on to say, a way for those who walk the way. Which when you first read it, it sounds like double speak to me. I mean, what, what really is the Bible trying to say? Okay, you're on the way if you're walking on the way. What? Not really a point there to make. But, but we need to go a little bit deeper. And we need to understand who they are in this chapter. And it's kind of withheld until the very end. Who is this chapter talking about? Who are they? Who are the ones on this highway? And towards the end of the chapter, it becomes very clear that they are the redeemed. They are not just anybody. They are the redeemed. They are not under the heading of Edom. They are under, head, under the heading of the children of God. They are redeemed. Who is walking on this highway? The redeemed of the Lord are walking on this highway. Now, redemption is a biblical word that simply means to buy back. When a person would go so far into debt, be so financially underwater, at that time, the only available option was for them, in a sense, to sell themselves, enslave themselves to the one that they owed. We have bankruptcy laws. They didn't. So if, if I owed you so much money, the only way I could get out is that I will enslave myself to you. I'll be your servant in order to pay off that debt that I owe you. Now, a family member, a friend, someone could come along and redeem me, could go to my master and say, okay, I'll give you all the money that Ron owes you, and I will buy him from you, in a sense. I'll purchase him back. I will redeem him so that he is declared free, no longer your slave. Well, the, the biblical story, the gospel account, is that due to sin and rebellion in all of humanity, it's like every human being is stuck in this cosmic pawn shop. We're all in hock. We're all stuck in this state where we're, we're carrying some debt that we're unable to pay. We don't have the ability to buy ourselves out of the pawn shop and back into freedom and back into reality. We are stuck there except that a redeemer would show up and say, I can cover that. I can buy them back, which is precisely our gospel message, which is precisely what Christ did with his own life. I've got all these people from all nations that are stuck in this cosmic pawn shop. They are stuck in hock, and I am coming, I'm entering into this situation in order to lay down my life to be a ransom for many, to be the payment that buys them back so that I can take them home. Anyone who's truly come to terms in your soul with that reality, if you believe that narrative as I'm laying that out and you understand it in that way, that yes, before God, that is the reality. Now, there's many other narratives that you may have, will have heard, might accept, but if you've accepted this one, I was in a debt I could not pay. 
Jesus came and paid that debt that I could not pay and purchased me back and has set me on this way, that makes you the redeemed. You are therefore redeemed and on the way because you are part of they who are the redeemed walking on this way that God has made. There are no dangers there, God says. No lions, no one's going to hurt you. No ravenous beast to come upon it. They shall not be found there. Uh, you're probably saying, well, wait a minute. I've been a Christian for more than five minutes, and I happen to know that there are many ravenous beasts and lots of trouble and uh, lots of pain and lots of difficulty. We know that dangers abound in the Christian life, but the dangers are different for the redeemed. We dim the lights just for effect. We'll get to the really good part of the sermon. So, Like in Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, When Christian had to walk the path and there were lions on either side. Here's how the story goes. Looking very narrowly before him as he went, he espied two lions in the way. Now, thought he, I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous were driven back by. The lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. Then he was afraid and thought also himself to go back after them, for he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are placed there for trial of faith where it is, and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come unto thee. Then I saw he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter, he heard them roar, but they did him no harm. This is the path that God has set. This is the highway. The lions roar, but are chained. And the instruction to Christian was stay on the path. If you stay on the path, the harm can only come so close, and it cannot come nigh you. It can do you no real harm. And the last point in the chapter about the pilgrimage is that it is filled with joy. The journey is made with singing, everlasting joy, obtaining gladness and joy could also be translated. And they're overcome with gladness and joy. It's hitting them like a Mack truck. The gladness and the joy is almost too much for them to contain. This is the adult version of kids in the back seat when you're going to Disneyland. It's just too exciting. We can't handle it. We can't take it anymore. Too much fun lies ahead. We're too excited. We can barely contain ourselves. It's so good. And can you imagine kids in the back seat going to Disneyland being sad until they get there? Oh, I'm sure we'll be happy when we get there. But until we get there, it's time to be sad. No, this is what the Lord is saying. The pathway, the highway is filled with joy and gladness because you know where you're going. You know what's coming. 
You know who's made the highway. You know who's at the end of the highway. You know where you're going. Peter describes it well in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy, listen, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the kind of joy that being in Christ gives, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. It's like we're just we're, we're, we're living in a state of obtaining this outcome that is all so much future, and yet it's present. It's working presently in our hearts causing inexpressible joy in our hearts. Let's have the worship team come on up. Just about finished. Folks, I I want you to hear and know that God knows and cares enough about where you're at at this moment, what you're facing, what you're undergoing and I'm certain it's a it's a mix of joy and gladness and sadness and pain and and hurt and the point of the message that even even in the darkest of days even in the saddest of days hear the heart of God on this day at this stage in your journey at this point in the path I want to infuse you with joy. I want you to know that whatever you're facing today, the plan, and please never forget, this is the plan, this is the intention. I'm going to bring you home. Home like you've never known before. Home like you've never experienced. A renewed home that's beyond your imagination. And when you come into it, you're going to come into it with singing and rejoicing because it's that glorious. Did you know that the goal of God's redemptive plan is our greatest joy? That's how he wants to finish the story. The people of God, beyond themselves, with gladness and rejoicing. And he gives joy for the path as well. Christmas gifts of God, hope and peace and joy. Joy to look forward, but also joy for the journey. We've been ransomed. We've been ransomed. And we're on a highway to a new home. That's happy news to fill our hearts with joy. Let's stand together.